Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Thank you for joining us tonight. Chassie said she just won her trivia contest with me being her favorite podcaster. Uh, That was the question, but uh, for some reason she is convinced I'm to pay her the double jeopardy winnings. So uh, we'll work on that later. Um, We have a terrific guest lined up for tonight. Um, we'll be discussing his captivating books with his combo sci-fi ancient history themes. Um, you've seen Dr. Arlen Andrews on ancient aliens discussing uh, ancient technology. Arlen has had a career in engineering and he's worked in the White House Science Office and at the White Sands Missile Range. He has a uh, great book on a unique Peruvian sculpture entitled uh, Kill Armayuk, called The Shadow Machine. the guest is already laughing at me. That's uh, becoming more of a standard practice. You know, each show is just getting weirder. Um, you know, we'll also be uh, uh, discussing his Thaw. It's the first book in a trilogy of life during the upcoming Ice Age. Um, you can learn more about Arlen at sigmaforum.org or attend one of his ancient Kentucky monthly meetings. Uh, hi, Arlen. How are you? 
I'm uh, doing well, Mark. Thank you. And uh, by the way, that's that, that is pronounced Kia Rubiak. Kia Rubiak. Okay, Kia Rubiak. Okay, I really screwed that one up. Okay, <laughs> well, maybe with more practice during the uh, show, I, I'll, I'll get it right. I, I, I wrote it down uh, phonetically. Maybe. That might help, but it's a catch with name, so it's hard to do in English. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, it, um, you know, we have so much to cover tonight. Um, you know, let's kind of just uh, just jump into the. Um, um Kia Rubiuk book uh first and you know one of your ancient aliens colleagues uh wrote the foreword you know Chris Dunn um you know a very nice guy he has a terrific book the Giza power plant um so I'm I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with uh you know Chris's uh many appearances on ancient aliens uh you know looking at the science and engineering How, um you're bringing a similar approach to your writings as well. Um, can, can you explain what your approach is to understanding a uh, structure such as Kia Ruby Yuck? Okay, first I might, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> my allergies. I might mention to the listeners what Kia Rubiak is. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It's a rainbow-shaped sculpture embedded in limestone uh, about 30 miles northeast of uh, Cusco, Peru, in the Sacred Valley of the Inca. Uh, I came across it. Uh, I was on my way to something else, and I happened to see a sign, and we went over to look at it. And uh, I saw this uh, rainbow-shaped sculpture cut in the side of a uh, huge limestone rock. Uh, the sculpture is about, uh, about nine feet wide, and about three feet high, and about two feet deep. It's reclined at about 45 degrees. And uh, I thought, wow, this is spectacular. And the, the inner part of it, of the rainbow, is parabolic shaped. I said, well, this has got to be a, uh, a solar calendar. Uh, that tells me it's a solar calendar. Anything to do with parabolas is, is a solar calendar. So that night we went back to uh, Cusco in the hotel. I got the laptop out and started looking up. I said, I want to read all about this. This is interesting. <laughs> there was nothing other than a government pamphlet saying it's there. There was absolutely nothing archaeological about it. So we went back out there and I took a lot of pictures, and I hired a local guide, Brian Forster, to take measurements for me because I had to get back to the U.S. And, uh, over the years, I had him go out half a dozen times and take a lot of photographs, a lot of measurements. 
But what I wanted to do, I wanted to study this thing, but I couldn't be there to get pictures of it all the time. So I thought, well, I'll make a 3D CAD model, computer-aided design model of it. Mm-hmm. And with that 3D model, then I can bring the sun in at any time and do anything I want to and, and see how the shadows work. Because I I suspected when I first saw it the way the shadows would work that every other sundial in history anywhere in the world has got a pointer on it somewhere. That's called a gnomon, G-N-O-M-O-N. This one had nothing. But the way I saw the shadows working, I said, this thing could, might work without that. That would be unique in all the world and all of history if it's true. And so I made some very simple models using a program called SketchUp. And I said, my gosh, this thing is going to be able to tell us when the the solstice are. are. And so I had Brian go out and photograph it. And the photographs he took proved that my model was right. I predicted what how the shadows would be on the solstice of June. That's the end of the year in the South America in the old days, the end of the year and the beginning of the year. The sun is at a position for about four days. It doesn't really move at, at around noon time. And even today, the uh, Inca and Peruvians uh, celebrate what they call Inca or Inti Raimi. Inti, I-N-T-I, is the name of their name for the sun god. And Rami is a celebration. So Inti Rami, there's four days of parties in Peru, believe me, 24 hours a day. I was there <laughs> later on in uh, 2017, and the music and the parades never stopped. It was a great, but anyhow, to get back to it, there was no archaeological writing anywhere that I could find about this Kia Rubiak sculpture or its unique properties. And so I thought, well, I'll write something up. It, it took a long time to get the models right, to try to get the shadows proper. because So I wound up with approximate models. And so I wrote the book hoping that the uh, real archaeological community would get out there and study this thing, maybe do a 3D scan of that whole huge rock and find out exactly what's going on, make it perfect, whereas mine is approximate. And that's what I did. And uh, as far as I know, this is the first time anybody's ever used 3D CAD computer modeling to study an ancient uh, structure like that to see what it does. And it was very interesting. Uh, it's time-consuming because I tried to get it perfect, but I couldn't because I, we don't have perfect measurements. But the model works. It, if you read the book or read the articles that are coming out about it, you'll see that it tells where the solstices are in December and June. And not only that, but at a certain point during the June solstice, the, uh, there's a hole cut in the surrounding rock where the sun shines through onto that rainbow sculpture. At the same time, about four other shadows line up. So there's half a dozen things that happen all at once. So if you were an ancient person watching this thing, you're the guy that's responsible for telling them when the, the year ends. All these things happen within a few minutes of each other. You can say, okay, Bob, Ica, the, uh, the year now starts, the year now ends. And uh, my interest is that there was nothing else like it that I could find anywhere in the world, anywhere in history. Arlen, can you? Uh, can you keep your phone uh, still? It, it was uh, getting muffled. He's dropped, Mark. Oh, okay. 
Let me send him a message. Um, I think I think, I, I think it was inter- interference of some sort. Um, okay. Well, I have wait. I have three six one. He's back. Okay. A telephone died on me. The handheld I had. Sorry. Okay. Okay. You can edit this, right? Uh, 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 you weren't gone long enough to really uh, ca- cause any um, major problems. So, um, or, Arlen, let's talk about the dis- description of the site. There's, you, know, you gave the dimensions of the rainbow. It's a, and you know, when people see um, you know you uh you know taking measurements and standing next to it and uh you know doing other calculations it's actually a tiny uh well, sculpture uh but you know what else is in the area is it like part of a complex all right well the rock it's embedded in is probably uh 80 to 100 feet wide and 60 feet tall. Uh, an interesting part of it, and an integral part of it, is there is a rock outcrop above that stone circle that has also been carved. That casts an overhead shadow. And those overhead shadows are integral to the operation mm-hmm. of the uh, sculpture itself. While I was watching, I sat there, a stone about, I call it shaman stone, about 25 feet east of it. I was sitting there while my son and Brian Forrester were going around the rest of the site. I was so interested. In I sat there for a couple of hours and watched these shadows. <clears throat> and I think, I said, this overhead shadow, when it comes down and touches this one parabolic arc, that's telling me something. And then there are, are there a total, at the top there's a keystone, I call it a wedge, a keystone-shaped sculpture or flat area, trapezoid. And there are three trapezoids along each side. And where they meet, there are permanent markers between the two. So it looks like the hands of a watch to me. If you look up on YouTube, Brian Forster's Hidden the Ica channel, uh, there's one, uh, he made a video of that day of us there back in 2012. And they, I said, it looks like a watch, a Raylo watch, but more of a calendar than a watch but uh, you can see the shadows so I went there again in 2017 to verify the uh, take the final measurements and verify and I used video and everything else and I, I showed the shadows operating as I said they would and so I have proof it does work it works that way it might do other things in addition to that another feature that occurs that I noticed and I, I noticed some of the photographs Brian had taken, and then I went down in 2017 and looked at it. Uh, at least during the solstice, maybe other times of the year, but at least during the solstice time, during a certain time of the day, it looks like the shadow of a, a large shadow of a condor alights on the structure itself. Uh, and I, in the book, I point out what's what on it. And uh, up and down the... Uh, sacred valley of the Ica there 
there are other places where the uh, shadow. In Orlando, what, what role does uh, condors play in the um, Inca or, or Mayan uh, hi, you know, hi, histories? Well, this would be uh, the Mayans in Central America. All the Indian cultures, apparently viewed the condor as a sacred bird so it's a big cultural thing uh, the condor represented things in the sky the puma mountain lion represented things on the ground and there are other places in Peru that the shadow of a puma appears at uh, this place both of them do six months apart and then for things underground the serpent is for underground so they Apparently, the Inca culture recognized, and other Indian cultures recognized, three different spirit animals, I guess. The condor for the sky, the puma for on the earth, and the serpent for from the ground. I didn't see any serpent activity there, but there might be. If, if we had somebody with a, you know, a camp out there or have a webcam on site 24-7 for a year, they'll tell me what would turn out. Unfortunately, from what I've been reading lately, and the things I've been getting from the State Department, Peru is not safe to go to anywhere. So, unfortunately. So, but the, um, condor, the condor appears in other places all over the Sacred Valley. Okay. So, when you are. You know, first learning about this uh, sculpture and, you know, you sit in the shaman's seat. Um, you, know, you are bringing your trained engineering mind to look at this. So how, how do you approach... Um, a- analyzing what you, you know, some possibilities that, you know, you may think that, you know, what it could be, you know, you know when you get home, you're going to, you know, you know uh, you know, go have access to, you know, more written material, possibly more written materials about the Incan culture, but you know, what are you uh, when you first start analyzing it, what are what are you uh, thinking with your uh, tr- you know, with your engineering training? Well, the first thing an engineer does when you're faced with a problem measurements take <clears throat> take measurements. You can't argue with the measurements. Take the, the dimensions, the angles, the orientation. Uh, and start off not with anything in mind. I, I admit when I first thought, I thought it's a solar calendar because there's that parabolic thing. And the parabolic sculptures around the rest of the world in the, always mean the, something to do with a solar calendar. And so I took the measurements. I made a simple model just in a few hours. And I said, wow, it looks like 
if this thing is oriented right and my dimensions are right, that these shadows are going to show up at these solstices. That's very important for agricultural civilization to know when the uh, seasons begin. I mean, it's a matter of life or death. If, you know, if they plant at the wrong time, they can't harvest. Mm-hmm. You know, be famine. Makes sense. But that was very important to all all societies around the world. First off, it starts with agriculture, and then it gets eventually it becomes a ritual. And you know, they probably have other symbolic meanings to it too. But but so what? I, that's what I did. Measure, you can't argue with the measurements. You got the measurements. I put the 3D CAD system, and then, my goodness, the shadows are, look like it's going to happen this way. And that's why I asked Brian to go out there on the solstice itself the old, for about an hour and photograph it every few minutes. And the shadows acted just like the model did and uh, even showed some other things. And then when I went back and looked at my photographs, I, when I was out there in April of 2012, I saw, wow, the sun is shining through at a certain time. So I ran my model back to that time, and the model came out same, showing the, the hole and the sun and everything else. And wow, it's hard to argue with that. So to me, that was evidence that it was it was operating by a way that could be predicted by the models. And so then I started looking at it and like, wow, what else could it do? What else does it do? And then there's a lot of other features in there. Too much to go into detail on talking here, but there. And, and I'll bet, <clears throat> as I say in the book, you know, uh, Chris Dunn was an inspiration for me because I uh, I went to Egypt with him in 2008. I wrote an introduction to his second book, The Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt. And uh, I saw what Chris could do by applying engineering analysis, uh, engineering experience, the things that other people are, have looked at but did not understand. And uh, I've been interested in ancient civilizations and stuff forever. And uh, all my life, it's from a little kid. And uh, it was kind of interesting that here's something that nobody else has looked at. Maybe look at it. And I found that thing nobody's ever found. I'll admit now, about a month ago, six weeks ago, I sent a copy of my book to a professional archaeologist who has studied the Andean cultures, written lots of papers, and asking for comments. I have had nothing. Back early on, when I first started this back in 2012, I uh, I asked archaeologists at some universities about it, and most of them never even heard of it, so they weren't very interested. So I said, "Okay, I'll write the book myself. I'll do the research," and I did. It's out there, and uh, some of the spec. I I in the book I tried to, or I did say these are facts. You can go see these things occur at this time. You can't argue with that. It's there. And then I have a lot of speculations about what else might be, and those can be argued about. And I might be wrong. I might be right. But at least I'm, I want to get people interested in it. I think the place is unique enough, spectacular enough, that it ought to be classified as a World Heritage Site. It ought to be a tourist destination back when whatever Peru can open up to tourism again <clears throat> without all the crime and everything they're having down there. And uh, <clears throat> it would be nice to bring tourism to that little village nearby. The, the people are dirt poor there. It would be great for them to have a, a tourist destination. Uh, mainly I people to appreciate the genius of whoever it was who designed it, this thing. Now, when I first posted pictures of this on Facebook back in 2012 when I got back from Peru, 
Uh, people say, oh, it was melted in by lasers. It was done this by machining. And then, no, 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 no. <clears throat> if you look at it, I have all the detailed pictures. It was chipped out. Uh, in a few places, it looked like it's almost like a shovel or a big chisel or something. But most of it is, uh, you can tell, thousands and thousands of chips. So they chipped it out with, with stones or other tools. They might have had some metal tools we haven't found yet, but there's nothing alien or you know, Atlantean uh, technology involved in this. Uh, I don't want people to attribute it to something else. There was there were some geniuses back in the Indian times, <clears throat> Inca or maybe before. We don't know when this thing was made. There was a genius that figured out conceptually how to do it. And then they applied the workmen to it, and I I think I estimated in the book probably it took a year, eighteen months, mm-hmm. work to get it. How it was done now, as an engineer, I was thinking, oh, how did they calculate and design this thing? And my wife, better engineer than I was in this case, she said, if it was me, hun, I would make a, uh, a terracotta model of it first, mud, and then uh, I would tweak it during the year to get the shadows I wanted. And once I had it perfect, then, then I would tell the guys to start chipping away at the stone. It's a lot easier to mess around with a mud model than it is to try to correct the mistake in the stove. So I gave she, her credit. Uh, for okay. And, uh, she, yeah. she deserves it. Oh, yeah. She, uh, but like I said, the whoever it was, somebody conceived of this thing. That's something that had never been done before or probably have never had been done since. And I just think people need to realize that genius comes in all kinds of colors and packages and cultures. And this is one example of it that's been overlooked, in my opinion. And I want to bring people's attention to it to get it studied. That's not, that's not the only that's not the only genius sculpture in Peru. I was there to study another one, but that's another whole book, another whole study. Well, I, I, I'm you know, curious about uh, you just brought up and. You know, we aren't, you know, there's probably some type of uh, chiseling, percussion flaking, you know, go, uh, going on. Uh, but it, we don't get the, it, it doesn't seem like the same precision as we get from those H blocks. Um, is that a Puma Punku? Yeah. Well, you know, Chris said uh, those eight blocks. Those things are individually cut. They're not. They're not uniform. Each one is different. So they were just they were chipped out too. Okay. Now, this one. Now this one. I addressed this in the book. This one was not meant for a lot of public display. There's no area to stand around where you can put a thousand people to look at it. You probably had one guy called a Yanka or a Shaman 25 feet away on that conveniently placed stone, which is why they built it to start with, I think, because they already had a stone up there somebody could sit on. You look at it from a distance, it looks nice and smooth. The places that needed to be smooth are smooth. The places that could be rough, they left alone. There was no reason. The, if you look at pictures of it, parts of it are smooth close up. Uh, but a lot of it is very rough. So, like I said, 
like true engineers do, true artisans and artists do, you do what's necessary for the function and you don't do any more. You know, why why spend years doing something that after a month is is good enough. So it, it was not meant to be pretty, it was not meant to be uh, in my opinion looking at it from a twenty first century, you know, Anglo guy. It was not meant to be pretty. It was meant to be functional. And they put the work into the areas that needed to be functional. The that inner arc, the inner arc at the bottom of the rainbow thing there is uh, very precise, very sharp. The uh, little uh, hour marks along the side, if you want to call them that, those are meant to be shadows. They're not precise, but they're precisely located. But from a distance, uh, they look like marks from a, a analog wristwatch, and they're good enough. Uh, it's not meant to be perfect. If, if you want perfection, you know you want to look at those vases like Chris has studied over Egypt. Where, you know, get down to ten thousandth of an inch. Those are meant to be handled and be appreciated. This one is just this is a tool, engineered tool, with a big rock. The guy looked at it. Okay, it's uh, the solstice, it's first day of winter, first day of spring, whatever. And also, there, you can look at the equinoxes on it, too. And you, One analysis I did, probably speculative, is you could probably tell the months, the months of the year by looking at certain shadows, too. And, and there might have been more, more detail than that, but I, I couldn't determine any more than that. Okay. It wasn't a work of art. It was a piece of equipment. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, with sculpting, with the sculpting that went on in, uh, and to cut away the rock and you know, going into it, uh, you know, a little bit. Uh, it's going to leave uh, debitage, but you say that was you know, uh, not found. It seems very uh, similar to you know the descriptions of you know that hill hilltop along the uh, Nazca lines that. It was just sheared off, it, but the uh, refuse uh, really wasn't just thrown over the hill. It was uh, seemed like it, it was removed from the entire site. So yeah, that seems to be well, a pattern that uh, is you – know, uh, Going on throughout South America, I, uh, I just I thought that a, was an interesting fact. I did a calculation in the book showing how I estimated the volume that was taken out, and uh, from there is where I estimated how long it took to do it. But uh, if you uh, look at the size of it, I mean, in modern times, it'd be you know a dozen wheelbarrows worth. They might have just thrown it down at the bottom somewhere, or they might have toted that off somewhere else. Or there's grass and dirt at the bottom 
it might be covered up. Uh, no, no excavations have ever done, been done around there. Nobody's ever looked at it. So, but again, it wasn't very much. I mean, a dozen wheelbarrows, big wheelbarrows. You know, uh, so many cubic feet. I forget how many cubic feet. It, it wasn't that much. So it wouldn't have been much to uh, get rid of. And there are underground, um, the archaeological area itself, the Kiribati archaeological site. They they mentioned in the government pamphlets that they there were some, uh, I guess, French drains around there. So that would have been the debris like that. The French drain, you know, is a dirt ditch with rocks in it, so that water circulates down through it. They, they probably use it. They could have used it for that. I, I think those cultures that were right on the edge of subsistence probably didn't throw anything away that they could use elsewhere. Okay, well, uh, that makes sense. You know, help with uh, drainage. Um, it, it does since. You know, we're talking about um, the shaman uh, sitting in his seat watching the summer solstice on December 21st. Does the reversal of the seasons... uh, have any impact on interpreting the, this um, count, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, it, the it shadow does, machine? Yeah, I, uh, there's a symmetry in there, and I, I explain that in detail in the book. On the, in the June solstice, the winter solstice, a vertical shadow aligns with the top left part of that keystone wedge at the top. And then uh, on the December solstice, and, and you can tell that because the overhead shadow comes down and touches that. On the December solstice, is a little bit different. It's, uh, the shadow comes down at a place called Solar Noon, and uh, the shadow is a little bit different. But it's, it's symmetrical. It's explained in the book. It's hard to explain it without the pictures in front of you, but... Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the 3D model showed what would happen. Brian went out there and photographed it for me, and sure enough, there it is. So uh, there's there's two points. There's a solar moon when the sun is highest, and there's the overhead shadow. Those two those two things have a symmetrical relationship on the left and right side of that wedge. It's explained in the book. It's it's difficult to say here, but then on the, uh, the equinox, the shadows, the March and September, the uh, shadows aligned with a, another one of those edge markers each time and the shadow comes down. And it, it, it was elegant as far as I was concerned. I was surprised when I did these things. I thought, my gosh. And then every time he went and photographed me for me at those times, it, it worked. And I said, well, amazing how much you can do with just an approximate model. No, I, I, again, I, I was impressed, you know, with the photo. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed the whole uh, book. Um, 
but you know you did did have many um, captivating photos of you know the sculpture or I enjoyed it and it and we really don't know the date of uh construction no uh it's at least five hundred years old because that's about when the ecos were wiped out, you know when the thing fell apart uh there was a Ica somebody I can't recall his name though he did give orders for uh calendars to be built all over the country. And I thought that well that's cool, you know. Maybe maybe this is one of them. However, there's not another one like this anywhere in Peru or anywhere else anybody's found. Now if they found another one fifty miles away or hundred miles away like this, that'd be nice. That that would be probably dated. That's where uh Yupanki, the Eco Yupanki did that. But this is all by itself. You know, just looking at the the weathering of the sharp edges, it doesn't look like it's many, many thousands of years old. You know, around Cusco, there's a lot of stones that uh, obviously are very, very old. And the carvings and things of them are worn, worn quite a bit by wind and rain and everything. But uh, I had tried to determine by that hole where Iti, the sun, shines through. I looked at what time of day and the angles and everything involved were on that and try to say, okay, how far back in time would that work? But it's so, uh, all my measurements are so uh, inaccurate, you know, not precise. It's hard to say. It looks like, I mean, I went back a couple thousand years on that, that SketchUp uh, 3D modeling you could put in any time of year for thousands of years back, any time of day and everything else, and uh, watch what the shadows do. I tried to determine it that way, but I really couldn't. But this thing could be a thousand years old, or it could be 500 years old. We don't know what culture did it. I would suspect. Well, of course, the Inca culture was only around for like a couple hundred, 150 years or so. You know. So the preceding culture before them could have made it. That's why I want somebody to look at it. Somebody that's a real archaeologist and uh, big 3D scanners and big computers and everything else to look at it and see uh, see where I went, uh, where I was approximate. Maybe they could be precise. The Peruvian government really, they have this like super unique um, archaeological sites and you know, like they you know they really aren't um, you know ha- having it uh, researched by their uh, museums or you know, aren't really uh, pushing for it to be a a world heritage site, anything well, like that. It, it's just, I, it, it just seems like it's just kind of like out there by itself. Ow, I want, one of the purposes of writing a book 
me. First of all, I would like to get credit for being the discoverer of this thing, of what it does. Uh, that I am, a, you know, that's important to me. But the most important thing is to get other people to go look at it. I want to bring it to their attention. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody in Peru has seen this thing. Now, there's, there's going to be an article about it in the Mensa Bulletin here in the next month or so. That's the international magazine for Mensa. And uh, there's another magazine that might be out there, too, and also the Ancient American magazine. I'm hoping that somebody down there at some point will uh, pay attention to it and look at it. They they mentioned it, and they – I mean, I've got a big calendar here in my, my office that uh, – Every year in August, for some reason, they have a, a big celebration, an Ithiorami celebration at the Kiarami Rock. On the, other side of, on the other side of the big stone out in the great big area, there's a place where thousands of people can gather, and they did, and they do. This one is tuck, like tucked back in the corner, like just a couple of people are going to look at it. That was not a, it wasn't a big celebration thing for the people to look at it. Now, around Cusco, before this Spanish destroyed it. They did have uh, great big pillars, and they had great big. Uh, from what I understand, Garcilo de Vasco wrote a book about it. The guy who was there when it happened. They had these big pillars, and you could look at the uh, all the solar calendar stuff going on, and everybody out there saw the solstices and the equinoxes and everything for the shadows. But the Spanish tore all that stuff down. Apparently, those things must have been about the size of Stonehenge. And so, like I said, Stonehenge or those great big things that they had at Red Cusco, those big calendars were for public use. That would be like the big bin, the big bin clock in London. This right here would be like mm-hmm. the grandfather clock in your hallway. This is just a small, a small instrument equipment, a calendar or watch, pocket watch as compared compared to the old, the great big things. So, yeah, so yeah, yeah that's what. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things uh, about uh, you know the shadow machine is that it, it seems like it is uh, such a small structure in uh, confined space. That it, it was more used for almost like a private situation instead of you know you know just say uh, you know all, all the people who could walk to Stonehenge for you know the summer solstice you know they're they're all there uh, or in you know, gathered. Inside of the huge ring at Avebury, or out, you know, outside of it, watching from the West Kent at Longboroughs, you know, so, something like that. You could, uh, you know, those places seem like they're they're a lot more public oriented. And yeah, you know, this, all the points you make in your book are you know, just you know, really make it a, a fascinating place. It, it, it's just so much different than. Uh, um, other right, right, time-keeping right down, places around the world. Yeah, right downhill from this are the megalithic remains of a, a building 
you know, there's a creek that runs to it, a waterfall. There was a building down there. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's a temple or a place where people lived or anything else. So there was stuff going on there. As I say in the book, I think the reason it was here is because, first off, somebody's survey, okay, we, we're going to build this thing. Where are we going to build it? Okay, here's a stone there. It's got a big flat face. We can work on that. It's got an overhead rock. We can do that. It's got a rock. I can sit on here and look at it. Let's put it here. And in the book itself, of course, I show uh, what hypothetical way of how they built it. They could have built it. And uh, the way the rock was located, the size of it, this viewing stone, the shape of the stone, that was probably the reason they put it there. Now, the thing is, if you moved it, that same construction 50 miles away, it would not work. It would have to be reoriented differently. The design would, would probably work, but you have to orient it right a different angle to get the thing to work. So it was unique for that spot. They chose that spot because it was convenient. It had every, all the features it needed. And I look at it as an engineering project. Okay, we got to build. The, the boss wants us to build a uh, calendar out here. Say when the season starts. What are we going to do? We got this much space. We got this much time. We got this many people. Let's, let's put it here. Let's do it. Here's this model we're going to make first, put it in place, make sure it works. It'll take a year or two to get that set up. And then once we get that done, we'll bring in the crew to do the chipping, do it. In a year or two, we'll have a calendar that tells us when the seasons start and a lot more. But some people have said, well, maybe it was a mood thing, you know, a shadow of the mood. Well, I don't know. It's hard enough to get this thing to work. Knowing the sun, <laughs> you try to stick a full moon in there over hundreds of years. And, hey, that's that's too complex for me. I'm just an engineer. I'm not a mathematician. I don't have a program that would stick that in there for me. And I don't think that I don't think the shadows from the moonlight are going to tell you anything, but sunlight tells you exactly when the seasons begin. So again. The engineering viewpoint as opposed to a archaeological or anthropological viewpoint. The engineering viewpoint is it, it, it's, it's a big machine. I call it a shadow machine because it produces shadows. Program it produces shadows according to certain inputs. It's a machine. I got to build a machine for the boss. Got to build it here. If it looks pretty when we get through it, that's fine. But that's not important. We got to have the curves just right. We got to have the markers just right. We got to have the shadows just right. The overhead shadows just right. Once you got that stuff, let's get it up. We don't have to create it up. It's not here for thousands of people to see. It's just for a couple, one or two guys during the year to come out and look at it. And uh, you know, that's, that's a different way of looking at things. It's uh-huh. not. It's not always religious ritual or superstitious. Something. It's a it's a damn machine. I mean, that's that's the way Chris looked at a lot of this stuff in Egypt. That's the way I looked at a lot of things. I mean, it can be more than one thing. You know, when they built cathedrals in Europe, supposedly you know just for uh, religious worship, but it was a community thing. People did it out of love. They did. They weren't forced to do it. They spent spent their lives working at cathedrals. To make something in those places, they made it pretty because people they wanted people to look at it. It's, you know, 
supposed to be a model of heaven, represent religious figures, so they want it to be very nice. But I imagine down in the basements of the cathedrals, they weren't properly finished or anything else. They were just hacked out, you know, whatever we need. So uh, people do different things. It's not always, I mean, I get so tired of a, a trope, a, a meme or a cliche. People say, well, it's, it's religious purposes. Because many times when you say that, go any further. That's what irritates me when people say ancient aliens built all this stuff. Well, once you say that, you got to quit. There's no more to be learned. If an alien culture built something, you can't learn. But I don't think anything on Earth we've ever seen has been built by any aliens. And the, any engineer, scientist, technician, or artist, artisan can go look at something and get a different interpretation of it than my interpretation of what some archaeologists look at and everything has got to be and I don't want to pick a fight with them because I, I respect what archaeologists do I can't imagine spending 50 years learning how to read hieroglyphics you know future predicate tenses of hieroglyphics I'm glad people do that but I'm more interested in, in the machine part of it in the engineering part of it like the pyramids how they were built that's cool to me the genius of the pyramids were who the hell conceived of that arranged the resources of it, designed it, planned it, and uh, got the logistics going to build these things. Now, I would love to know the details of the construction, but to me, the organization of it, the conceptual design, is far, far, far more transcendent than the actual building of it. And that's here. The same thing on a much smaller scale with Tia Rubiak. Uh, the conceiving of it, the genius of conceiving of that, I, I can't hardly imagine myself. I can't conceive of how somebody conceived of that to start with. How they did it, but getting out, that's mundane. That's the middle part, design of it. Arlen, are you um, finding that the technology from this group of uh, sculptors and engineers uh, that they had a a vision of their monuments that that was uh, similar to, you know, let's just say the ancient Egyptians where, you know, it, uh, you know if we go with, uh, you know, Chris's uh, Giza uh, power plant and all the technology that, um, you know, the tour guides say, but, you know, like uh, uh, putting a, wet log in a crack and, you know, letting it expand. That's how it's going to cause the rock to break apart. But, you know, Chris is arguing that, uh, you know, they had uh, stone-cutting machines. Are you finding that, you know, with your travels around the world and 
talking with Chris and see, seeing these, um, you know, having him demonstrate his theories, you know, by you know, being being on site with him. Are are, are these people uh, from, you know, out, you know, way back in time? Are they much more advanced than uh, you know, many people today are giving them credit for? Uh, it seems like a lot of uh, the government agencies aren't aren't really um, promoting that aspect of these ancient cultures. Well. I'll leave all the Egyptian stuff to Chris. You know, he's done that in detail. He showed, he showed me things behind the back muscles of uh, big sculptures there in Luxor. These, the back of the great big 20 foot high statues of Ramses. These mm-hmm. are perfectly sculptured uh, little uh, rivulets, I guess you'd say, down the back of this leg. There are dozens of them there. They're, they are perfect. I mean, like you said, within thousands of an inch in parallel. And those things, I, we, we can't conceive how they can be done by hand. You know, there had to be some sort of machinery involved. Uh, Chris and I have different discussions about different ideas about what those machines might be. But we looked at another one, and it's in his book. And uh, I took a lot of pictures of it. I looked at pictures of it yesterday, I think. At Abu Rawash, there's a stone that's about three feet by five feet by about a foot thick. It laying out beside this unfinished pyramid or destroyed pyramid, whichever way you look at it. It's supposedly, according to Hawass and ancient alien stuff, this is a restricted military area. You have to get permission to go to. We took a taxi out to it twice <laughs> when Chris and I were there. And uh, the... Uh, this thing has got – you can see where the stone originally had a rough surface, but there's an arc cut through it. And you look under the detailed microscope or magnifying glass, and you can see about every 60 thousandth of an inch for three feet across it, there's a cut. And you can see where whatever the blade it was one time skipped the place and gouged out a chunk like the real life happens, you know. So this was uh, a machine, and it was a fast machine. It was, if you have a, uh, a slow machine you're grinding something with, if you make a mistake, you stop. But if you have a fast machine, it's going to make a cut and a gouge before you can do anything about it. Right. I call it I call it the rose red Rosetta Stone of Abu Rawash because it's kind of pinkish stone, and that right there, to me, demonstrates some level of saw-cutting technology that they had when they built that pyramid or destroyed the pyramid or whatever it was. And you can't argue with it. No, my problem was that I was on a uh, – I had a few seconds in another movie called Revelations of the Pyramids. Some French guys interviewed me back in 08 in D.C. And uh, they were saying, what do you want? What do you want? science to do that you're not doing today. I said, what I want to do is I want the academic archaeologists who have never been in a machine shop, never built anything, 
constructed anything in a factory or anything else. I want them. I, I want them to lead, but I want them to listen to engineers, artisans, technicians, because we have different viewpoints that can help them. We're not trying to destroy archaeology. My God, we want to help it. That's what I said on that TV show that uh, we want to get other people involved in it. And, uh, and it doesn't seem, you know, every other science in the world welcomes amateurs. You know, w- without amateur astronomy, <laughs> we wouldn't have half the comets and asteroids that we have today. And, uh, you know, nobody expects an amateur to do as well as a James Webb telescope. But on the other hand, an amateur astronomer can find an asteroid coming in or a comet or something nobody else has ever seen. And by analogy, that's what I want us to do. I want people to listen to Chris Dunn. I want people to look at what I found out down there in Peru and uh, get other people involved. Uh, they, there are things that are evident to engineers, technicians, artisans, artists, sculptors. They're not evident to somebody who spent their life studying what other people said about other people's discoveries. Be on site, take the measurements, speculate, hypothesize, and prove it. And to me, with the uh, the 3D CAD system software that we have today, anybody can do it. It doesn't take a you have to be an engineer to learn to use 3D CAD stuff. Uh, in fact, with some of this new artificial intelligence stuff that's going around, the Chat GPT and stuff like that, I haven't used it yet, but you probably ask your AI helper there to. Uh, call up a 3D CAD system and draw you one of these things in a few seconds. In fact, I just thought of that. I might just try that here soon. I might just get on there. And I've, had do, <laughs> I've had them to do covers for me. I've had them to do covers, but just text description of a cover, and it comes up, wow, that's what I wanted. I might ask them to do a 3D CAD system. and uh, I don't know. Show me how the pyramids are built. <laughs> when... when- when I saw uh, you know, uh, Chris's uh, lecture at the uh, Serpent Mound, he, he uh, showed a face of um, whatever Pharaoh it was, and Ramesses, yeah, yeah, okay. The whole face is uh, perfectly symmetrical, and you know, had all these. Uh, lines on it, you know, like you know, from you know the forehead to the chin, and you know, both sides uh, of, of the face were the exact yep. same dimensions, and uh, you know, tip of the nose to the ch- uh, cheek or e- you know, ear, um, you know, it was the same on both sides. I, you know, he, he's uh, uh, you know, possibly, you know. If you're using hand chisels, are, are, are you going to get that precise accuracy, or you know, were they using the ancient Egyptians using um, some kind of uh, technology that um, you know, has been lost in time? You know, we you know, may have rediscovered yeah, it now. Know. Again, I, 
I'll leave those details to Chris. What I did cover in that introduction to his book, Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt, was people ask, where are the tools? Where are the tools? Well, I'll tell you, when the civilization, in the Egyptian civilization, it was around for four or 5,000 years, but it collapsed several times. When, it, when a civilization collapses, the most important thing that scavengers want after that, the survivors want, is finished metal. You know, finished metal can become spears or fish hooks or knives or whatever else. If our civilization collapsed and we have a post-apocalyptic thing and people are wandering around, every automobile that there is is going to be cut up for sheet metal to make spear points and knives and fish hooks and needles. And, you know, over a thousand years, anything that's finished metal will be recycled. Uh-huh. And so if you have something that's thousands of years old, uh, now my dream and Chris's dream, of course, is that someday when Hawass is gone, somebody else over there will find a workshop full of the old equipment that, that was ignored, you know, or was, was, was not touched. But barring that, finished metal is very, very precious. Because if you have a primitive society, it's going to be hard to go out mine ore and refine it and process it and stuff, but if you got stuff laying around just for the taking of it, you'll take it and you'll cut it up and you'll make things out of it. And uh, if they had machines, machine tools, that's probably what happened to them. Uh, I, I, Chris can talk to you about it. Like I said, I'll leave all that precision work to him. Uh, the stuff in South America, they, all the stuff we saw in South America, none of that even approaches anything that uh, we saw in Egypt. Well, there are some finished stones at Kurokacha that look pretty nice, but uh, there's there are no artifacts that we've ever found in South America that I'm aware of that approach anything that was done in Egypt and other places. But that's why I'm excited about the Kiarumia culture, but it's evidence of advanced thinking. Uh-huh. And that's it's, it's the only, to me, the only real precision artifact that's left down there that I, that I know about. Then there's another stone that I was going to look at, and I've written articles about it, called the Soweti Stone. That's about another 30 miles beyond the Kiarobiak. That, that's got uh, a lot of carvings on it, and uh, that's what I went down to study when we came across this one. But the Soweti okay. Stone... Uh, you can look it up on Wiki. I, I made a Wiki Wikipedia entry on it. And someday I might write more articles about it. But uh, but those are two places that, uh, to me, are evidence of advanced thinking. There might be other ones there. I haven't been all over South America. There might be other places there, there that also show the same conceptual thing. Uh, the uh, the Suwede Stone, I was in contact with the people from Columbia University of the Indies, and when they looked at the Suwede stone, they said there's somebody with the with the brain of a Newton, Isaac Newton, worked on this thing, and I agree with her. And same thing here with Kiarubiak. It had to be a, a world class thinker or thinkers to come up with that concept, in my opinion. Okay. I would like, I would like for archaeologists to go look for other evidences of this person or this school of thought or whatever it was. You know, who knows what we'll find? Yeah. It, it, okay. So, 
Arlen, since you were just talking about uh, the ancient Egyptian civilization collapsed a few times, uh, and, and that could be a nice uh, segue into Thaw and you know, you're talking about you know, get uh, you know, the Kia Ruby Arc uh, you know, monuments and you know, you know, you know, thirty miles away was another place, and you talked about another uh, like the pillars over the uh, hill from it. So, uh, you know, you, know, you do have uh, you know these uh, different cultures connected by a river in your thought uh so so you know let's kind of set set the stage for your first book in this series and you know you ha- have um the third of the trilogy uh you know recently just came out so um get into what seems like um a prehistoric culture in the north, well, or in okay. the uh, in the ice icy areas. Okay, well now I'm switching now from my nonfiction work to science fiction. I write science fiction right. as well because I like I like weird things and strange things, and I guess that's why I'm on your show. Okay, the Thaw trilogy. It's also called the the Chronicles of Shadowfall for a reason that you'll know if you read the book. But there are three books, Thaw, Melt, and Flow. That's F-L-O-E, like ice flow. When I was in Peru looking at these ancient ruins back in 2012, around Saxuaman, outside of Cusco, they see these big stones the size of a house, surrounded and thrown around, broken. I thought, they must have been a heck of earthquakes sometime in the past. And I was thinking about that and thinking about it. When I got back to the airport in Lima, few days later, I was thinking, you know, some of these stones might be 10, 15,000 years old. I wonder what will be left of our civilization in 10, 15,000 years, say, like after the next ice age. So I sat down on my little laptop and started writing a story, thinking about it. And the way I write, I don't create it. I watch it. And so the first thing I saw were these little bitty guys, I mean, really short, like two and a half feet tall dark skin riding on birds like emus ostriches but they call them emus I said, what the heck is this so let me, what are these guys doing and so I started writing it and they are looking at a glacier that's miles high that north of here up in Indiana you know they had glaciers in the ice age that were two miles thick they scoured mm-hmm. everything before them there was nothing left <laughs> and uh, so as I wrote the story, and this was a this was a story, a novella called Fall. There was an analog magazine back in uh, 2013, I guess. It was a cover story. It shows a little guy sitting on top of an emu with a spear and a bunch of things in front of a glacier. Okay, there's been an ice age. It's wiped out our whole civilization. And these guys are survivors of it. 
And uh, the reason they're so small is their ancestors were caught when the glaciers were formed. The glaciers formed around them, but there was a scab land that the glaciers didn't form in, but they were caught in the middle of it for 30,000 years. And so the lack of resources, I, mean, I came up with all this later. This, I read, saw, read the story first, or saw the story and wrote it. But when the editor and the copywriters would ask me, well, how did this happen? Well, over there in Indonesia now, they had found their remains of the people they call hobbits. They were only like three feet tall. They, they had been uh-huh. isolated on an island for a long time. And the amount of resources there meant that the survivors had to get smaller and smaller. You know, they had miniature elephants and miniature people. The same thing happened in my story up in the upper, this would be the upper peninsula of uh, Michigan. And uh, the funny thing was, when I was telling the story to some people at a meeting up in Upper Peninsula, they said, well, that's true. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, the last time the glaciers formed, they had left this area open. The glaciers formed all around it. Well, my story, somehow the people were there. Now, the river that appears in the story. Uh, would, the new river. Would be the... Would be the Eventually, would be the Mississippi River, and uh, they are a fairly primitive culture. They're not Stone Age, but they're they don't have a lot of technology. But they ride these birds and they hunt big. They hunt wolves, and the wolves are their enemy, and the birds are a natural enemy of these wolves. And uh, it builds a world there. They have the main thing is. Their sky is always cloudy. They don't ever have a clear sky because at the bottom of this glacier for, for 100 miles, it's always clouds. So they have no measure of stars. They don't, they've never seen stars. The moon is just a glow to them. And the sun is uh, it's, it's there, but it doesn't cast shadows. You know, It's just a mist, mist all the time. And so the guys, one way or another, go down this river and they run into another culture where uh, people didn't experience the same thing. There's a solar priest culture down where we would call Memphis and the Mississippi is a couple of miles wide and they're down there and uh, they meet all these tall people who are different colors and different color hair. Their women look different, which they like a lot and they're they run into different cultures. Meanwhile, they uh, while they're up near the glaciers, the people who live near the glaciers find uh, craft, something they call it the gods. The glaciers are melting. That's why it's called fall. This is after the next ice age, after 30,000 years from now, the glaciers are melting. And they find uh, the bodies of the tall people. And then they find a, a craft an aircraft and they have adventures with that and they wander down to the solar people down the river since the world has changed so much when the glaciers when all that water in, in the glaciers <clears throat> it lowered the ocean level hundreds of feet such that in their time what we call the Gulf of Mexico <clears throat> the bottom land is dry except for a couple places and down in that bottom land, there's yet another culture. 
and it's an absolute dictatorship, a monarchy run by our, they call it the motherland, by women. And the culture clashes. Every place they go, they have a culture clash. These guys, there's two. It turns out the farm's land is where the story starts. These little guys and their emus. Uh-huh. Again, they're about two and a half feet tall. They're, uh, their skin is the color of dark oak. Uh, they they treat women like, well, like some cultures treat women on Earth today. I won't get into that, where that is in the Middle East. But they, the women are just property. They're just, just there for reproducing <clears throat> another, another recreation. And so it's, the whole thing is about culture clash. These guys are very naive. They don't know anything. They go to these other cultures. It turns out this craft that they, <clears throat> the other people have dug out uh, has got a means of propulsion that they can fly in it. And, uh, they finally learn how to do that, one of them does. And that takes them to all these other adventures. So they go from their Stone Age culture run by a chief down to a almost an Egyptian-like culture, ancient Egyptian-like culture run by solar priests, down to a medieval culture run by women. And uh, they get into all kind of trouble. And, uh, and uh, they also meet some other cultures that are uh, from the Indies. In fact, uh, people read all these books, they'll understand. The, uh, the sculpture at Kiarobiak has been reproduced. It's now in that bottom land, the motherland. There's a great big sculpture they've made. When it describes it, you'll see it's exactly the same as the Kiarobiak thing, except it's about five times as big. And it is used for ritual sacrifice. So, I don't know. I, I just watch these stories. I don't, I don't make it up. I just watch what they do. and then So, they, they learn a lot. Uh, some of the natural instincts they have for where they grew up makes one of the brothers into a natural warrior, a bloodthirsty warrior. He starts off as a really nice guy. And in Thorns Lands, when males are born, they're always born as twins. Uh, you see that in the book. It's never explained, and it's never pointed out. It's just that's the way it is. Females are born single, but males are always born twice. That's a genetic thing. That, don't ask me where it comes from. So one of the brothers, one of the brothers, one of the brothers is outgoing, athletic, attracts women, is a good warrior, and the other brother is more thoughtful and analytical. Now I have, I I will not say that reflects upon them at all, <laughs> but uh, they they know it. But they they get into all kind of adventures in their and cultures and their. One of the things I noticed in South America is a lot of hippie type, what I call hippie types or new age type people, are looking for instant salvation. So they go down to this ancient Inca stuff, and they're trying to not only smoke stuff and take dope and crap, but they're trying to get rituals and do like the Inca did and uh, get some kind of salvation. So I made fun of that in one of my Facebook posts because I saw a bunch of people there one day at a place called Tipon. The hydraulic engineering of Incas has really demonstrated that their works after 500 years. A bunch of people worshiping over a water sluice. And I said, you know, this would be like 
thousands of years from now, people one of our sewage plants worshiping over a, a sewage place. People got all <laughs> very angry with me. Same thing happened. Chris Dunn and I were in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid, and we came across two women over there meditating, doing the all thing. And I said at the time, Chris, can you imagine our descendants thousands of years now meditating inside an air conditioning duct? He just laughed. The, the people there didn't appreciate it. But, <clears throat> but anyhow, I make fun of that in the book. <clears throat> in the book, there they're <clears throat> they're going through these bottomlands. They've Somebody's built a great big pyramid, and they go inside yeah. the pyramid, and they um, they find a great big disc at the bottom with a bunch of pipes sticking up, and they say this is a holy site. So they built a pyramid and they worship in there. They can't read the writing, but the writing is there, and it turns out to be the wellhead of an oil company that was drilling. We we know it. They don't know what it is in the future. They know it. I threw that in there for uh, to make fun of that. That attribute people have that tendency of people to worship ancient things they don't understand. But, so some of that, some of the stuff I moved out, but most of the story I just watched, you know, and I watched watched a uh, ordinary kid, a young guy, 15 years old, becomes well, during the story during the books he becomes up to be about 20 and he becomes an absolutely bloodthirsty, ruthless warrior, and it makes him sick. He hates what he's become. But you'll see the circumstances require him to do that. And you see a several innocent people who start off wanting democracy and freedom and everything else. You see them turn into tyrants. And uh, you see all the characters develop. And yeah, the funny do. thing about it, the, the funny thing about it is other writers, and they say the same thing happens. The characters take over, and they do what they want to do. You're just there trying to report it. Because in one of my books, I won't say which one, one of the main characters gets murdered. And I was shocked when I wrote that. I said, wait a minute. I just almost brought the tears. I, I didn't want that to happen. I, I watched it happen. I had to describe it. And I asked the other writers, that ever happened to you? And they said, oh, yeah, all the time. The, the characters take over. So anyhow, the whole thing is about I wanted science fiction. 30,000 years from now, we're not necessarily going to be traveling the galaxy and doing all the Star Wars and Star Trek stuff. There are other futures out there that, are, to me, are more probable. I mean, I hope that we are. I hope great-grandchildren are traveling to the stars. More than likely, more than likely, the future is going to be more like, like the medieval dark ages with warlords, with high-tech stuff dystopian. I'm afraid that you know, uh, I never thought in the 21st century we'd be watching supposedly the second biggest military in the world trampling over innocent people and murder on a daily basis with missiles and stuff. It's the same stuff like Genghis Khan except now they got bombers and missiles guns and stuff. I really think I want science fiction to talk about the future but all the futures are not going to be glorious battles in space and all that stuff. My story is not the future, it's a future. There will be another ice age. Ice age just happen every 100,000 years, whether you like it or not. It's got nothing to do with whether human beings are here or not. In fact, we are we are in a warm, we're in an interglacial period right now. And we are very fortunate 
to be warm because ice ages kill and warp blossoms. The human race does well when it's warm and it dies when it's cold. There's a thing called the Malikovich cycles. And you'll see it. And you can see the NOAA charts and the NASA charts and everything else. Every 100,000 years, there's an ice age and some ups and downs in between. Right now, we are in a uh, an era that's not as warm as it used to be. Uh, every week or so, you'll see that archaeologists or a glacier recedes in Norway or Russia or somewhere. And underneath it, they find the result, the remains of a village. They find artifacts and stuff. Well, guess what? That meant thousands of years ago, it was warmer there. People lived there. And the glaciers formed since then is now retreating. So to me, the warmer it gets, the better. And uh, uh, it will change. Again, my son, you know, I'm not the greatest science fiction writer or the most popular one or anything else like that. But I will say one thing, every one of my stories, every one of the articles, everything else I've ever done, each is individually different than anything else that's ever been different from each other. I've never read a story before about when the next ice age comes. It destroys cultures. It rearranges cultures. And my books, this trilogy, Saw, Belt, and Flow, it, the ice age comes up on us about 200 years from now by something happens on the sun because of an ice age. But 200 years from now, we have many thousands of people living on the boat, on the moon, and some are Mars. It also covers, the story covers what happens to those people that survived on the moon, the lunar colonies down underneath the, the moon, what happened to them, and how eventually at some point, with remnant ancient technology left over, the people on Earth make contact with the people on the moon. And that makes for an interesting uh, culture clash as well. Oh, I, I, I really enjoyed Thaw. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that um, stuck out for me was it, it seems a little bit like you know the Shire from the Hobbit uh, books. Um, it, it, it's realistic, but you, you know, there's some of the elements of well, it's a little bit of a fantasy land. Um, but, you know, you could see yourself into that setting and it, it's um, the characters are uh, realistic responding to uh the different environments that you discussed. Um, You also work in like the pyramid example uh, along the river. Uh, Most most of the activity is taking place along this river that connects all the uh, the different uh, settings, um, you know, you know, the adventures that uh, Rist and 
Rusk have uh, do seem like they're based on uh, what we know from ancient history, some of these artifacts. You know, it, you, know you, you do create a very unique um, sci-fi world here on Earth. It is future. Yeah, it's a little bit like Land and Lost. It is. Uh, it seems like um, Marshall, Will, and Holly went back in, in, into time, but they a- actually uh, went into the future. I have a, I'm, you know, I'm about to be able to show. So, oh, uh, okay. Well, you had to be like the land of, the land of years. Lost that I read was, was comic books way back in the forties, and there was a totally different, <laughs> totally different thing. But yeah, yeah I was just talking about the slee stacks and Saturday morning cartoons. The uh, one interesting thing is there's a stuff. A magical cloth in that book called God's Cloth. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I visualized it. I saw what they were doing with it. Across a few years after that, I, I met a scientist who was actually working on stuff, and this it really does exist. It's called graphene, and I didn't know what I didn't even know what graphene was at the time. I, I knew the name, but I didn't know what it was. And, this graphene does has all the properties that that God's cloth did, but I just made that up. I don't. I must have heard about it somewhere. I can't say it, but uh, that God's cloth and the way that God's cloth has spread all the earth. I can't remember. Maybe in the second book, Melt, you see how that happened. And uh, but it's just weird to me that to me, as I've mentioned before, and I'm sure it's not automatic writing, but it feels like automatic writing. I'm. Every once in a while, like the pyramid thing, I see my own. But most of the time, I'm just watching what they do. And they they had this material, and they did all these magical things with it. It turns out it's a real material. We we have it now, but we have it in very small areas. We don't have it by the bolts and the square miles like they do in the uh, in the book. But we will. And then in the in the second book, in the second book, well, you're in that same future, but then at the end of that book, the last 50 pages of the book, it tells how the Ice Age came on. It tells where that that graphene God's cloth came from and where these uh, magic video spheres came from. And it all ties together the ancestors of that wrist and rust, where they started, how they got there. No, I admit I had to make had to make some of that up, but uh, it all fits. Okay, well, well uh, you know, if we're talking about uh, you know, the upcoming ice age, um, I, you know, is, <clears throat> you are getting into a little bit of the reversal of uh, yeah. Like the shadow machine is being observed on uh, December twenty first. You, know, you know, like a reversal of the uh, uh, hemispheres. Um, 
you know, we can also get into, you know, you know, when people start reading the book, they may be thinking of the Ice Age from like 12,000 years ago. But, uh, you know, since you do incorporate, you know, this the interesting, you know, reversal uh theme you know we could get into you know the younger something like the younger dryas uh period causing the ice age that wrist and uh rust have to deal with uh you know does the younger dryas or you know some of these solar flares you know something uh, out there in space, um, create something that w- we will be experiencing, and it, it's just part of a cycle that uh, already, you know, ha- happened that caused the last ice age to happen and eventually melt. Well. Actually, that Younger Dryas uh, events, that's the novel I'm working on now. That's another one. That's the next book. It's got nothing to do with with this trilogy. I'm working on another another uh, historical conspiracy novel that in, involves the Younger Dryas. But no, the, you'll see, and I won't give it away, but in the second book, it explains how that ice age happened. It, there's a solar flare, but the solar flare is caused by something else. And the uh, uh, Dr. Robert Schock, I think you've had Barbara's had him on in the past. I've seen. Mm-hmm. You know, he he talks. He thinks that the younger, younger Dryas was done by solar flares. That's what wiped out things in the past. And it might it might be. I don't know. But I have a solar flare, but it it's got a unique reason that it occurred, and I uh, I came up with that as an explanation by talking to my friend Stephanie Osborne, who's a writer down in Alabama. She suggested, I told her, Stephanie, i got to have a solar flare. What could cause that? But she told me. So uh, <laughs> that does what I needed. That, that, Like I said, that part of the book I had to make up. I wasn't just watching that one. All the stuff that wrist and rust was automatic writing, as far as I'm concerned. But now these Malikovich cycles, you can look that one up. Every 100,000 years, there's an ice age. It's been going back for half a million years or, or longer. They can go that, they look at the ice cores that have been dug up from the Vostok cores down in Antarctica and then the ones up in Greenland. They uh-huh. see that uh, the past has been a lot warmer than it is now. And this little so-called hockey stick little global warming thing that we've experienced supposedly in the last 100 years doesn't even go up enough for the width of the line that they use to chart it on on the graph. So we are are due for another ice age. And when they happen, when they happen, it's a matter, I think, not decades, but weeks. I, I hope it Hold wow. off until I'm gone. <laughs> I hope it holds off until I'm gone because I'm, I'm out here in Kentucky, you're in West Virginia. That's, it gets cold enough here. I'd hate for 
I'd hate to live in Alaska or Saskatchewan or somewhere, you know, or Siberia. And uh, when they do happen, you know, the, well, anyhow, the Ice Age business is still thawing in my book, Flow. And there's a, the North Atlantic is still all frozen over, and there's another whole culture up there of uh, ice pirates, a great big sled-driven uh, sailboats. And, and our friends, Riff and Russ, get to uh, meet them violently. And uh, those guys get to come and invade Motherland. A lot of weird things happen. And uh, at some point, when I get through the other books, I, I need to get back because sequels keep popping up and prequels keep popping up. The, the characters. Well, how did we get here? What happened? Uh, what happened when the Gulf of Mexico went dry? How did the people settle down there? Why did they set up this motherland? How did they get these this magic throne that communicates with the moon? And how did all this stuff happen? Hell, I don't know. I want to I want to write the story so I can see for myself. You. Yeah, you know, we've had other artists uh, you know, talk, talk about automatic writing. Uh, you know, Merle Pankhauser's done that with uh, you know, his music. Uh, you know, he, he spoke about his uh, conversation. The creative process that he discussed with uh, John Lennon. Um, how how do, do you get the, the, these images and you know, uh, where do you think the, these this inspiration comes from you talk about you know, you're you're watching it unfold how how does create you know, the the muses uh come to you well i've discussed it with other writers and some of them have something in common i always view it like there's a, a dark room in the back of my mind back of my head somewhere and uh, sometimes I have an idea, and I write it down, and I give it back there. The door opens and grabs it. They slam the door, and then sometimes minutes later, hours, sometimes years later, the door opens, and they throw out a manuscript, and I look at it. <laughs> That's one of the things. <laughs> it, it, it's not a friendly bunch. They slam the door, you know, like this song, the green door. They slam the door, and they throw stuff out. But uh, that's kind of a metaphor for I don't know, there's a subconscious part of the mind that generates all this stuff. And I guess it has influences from everything we've ever read and done and seen. But I'll tell you, you mentioned muses. It reminds me of music. The, uh, I'll, I'll tell you how some, something happens. I've written a lot of songs, usually weird songs. Like I said, back in the 70s, I was writing a bunch for my friend, but Occult country western songs don't seem to have a big market, you know. But uh, <laughs> back in the 70s, one night I was driving my little Spitfire convertible with a, with a ragged rag top back from a friend's house, back to my house in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And there was a raging storm going on. We had lightning and 
wind and the worst rainstorm I've ever been in. And I was kind of scared because I don't spit car convertible just kind of blowing around the road. And all of a sudden I had this vision of a huge bonfire. I'm talking about, I can still see it. And a half naked guy with a deer skin and the antlers, you know, just a glory cloth. And made uh-huh. beer dancing crazily around this bonfire like some kind of Celtic pagan thing. And then this music hit me. And I'd never heard that music before. And so I tried to remember it and I sang it to myself, hummed it to myself, and I got back to the, the house and I don't write music. Never have been able to write music. But I sat down and made a bunch of notations so I wouldn't forget it. I made ups and downs and pauses and things. And sang it up to myself. And then, once I got that done, words started coming in. But so I scribbled out all the words. I mean, all this happened in half an hour after I got home. And that was in like 1975 or 76. And, of course, I think it's, I have a bad voice, thinking voice, but I sing it to myself until I memorize it. And then, years later, in Indianapolis, I had a friend who could sing. And I sang it to him, and he took it. And say it pretty well. I have recordings of that even. And in fact, he told me years later, he said, Arlen, this song has become like a uh, national anthem for the pagan community. He said, I sing it at pagan meetings here in the Midwest, and people like it. And uh, well, that's good. Okay. Fast forward then in the 1980s to, uh, I'm trying to remember, I guess it's 2012. I was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, with a friend, and we were some friends. We were coming back from a science fiction conference over there, and I was telling her about the music and that that story. She wanted to know, so I hummed it to her, gave her the lyrics, and gave her that guy's tape that he had made back in the '80s. And so, long story shorter, we put it together. She made a video of it. She sings it. Made a video of it. It's on YouTube called Ancient Ages. Her name is Dr. Catherine Asaro, A-S-A-R-O. And you can look that up on YouTube. And, uh, she uh, she tweaked a little bit of it, changed the words just a little bit. We got some visuals, and she had some orchestration behind it. And uh, what she produced is a beautiful song. It's, it's more civilized than what I heard. Could get that quite across there that and what I heard was absolutely, insanely wild, pagan, animalistic. But it's close enough. What you see on YouTube is a civilized version of that. Where did that where that inspiration came from, I have no idea. I was in the middle of the storm, almost afraid for my life, with the lightning and the wind and the rain blowing my little car around. And all that hit all at once. In less time than I'm telling you. I got home, wrote it down. And uh, 30-something years later, she comes out with a song of it. Now, I did a whole bunch of funny country western songs, and my friend sang a couple of them for his uh, country western band he had back there. But uh, where that comes from, I have no idea. <laughs> None of the kids, I have no idea where that comes from because I, I never played My brothers all play, played instruments and sang a couple of professionally. I've never been able to play anything. But I hear music. 
And uh, hmm. anyway, I, I don't know where the creativity comes from. I have no idea. A lot of people I talk to think you know there is a common Akashic records, some kind of place where all human thought, consciousness goes, resides, and sometimes we tap into that. I, I will say one thing about weird stuff. There was a, uh, I had an experience when I was in, with Chris Dunn over in Egypt. We were in the Ramesseum, I think it was, one of those temples. And there was a uh, statue, I think it was Sekhmet, the cat goddess, made of black obsidian or something. When I stood in front of that thing, I felt, I felt power and emotions or something. I thought, whoa, what the heck is this? I never had done that around any inanimate object before. I was wondering, you know, if all the people that worshipped this statue in the past had left their impressions on it in some fashion or something. But I actually actually felt that. I thought, wow, we're, what, I, huh. what I wish, I've written articles about it before, what I really wish is that real scientists would start taking measurements about things and see what it is that the nervous, human nervous system interacts with. But I don't believe in anything supernatural. I just believe in things we don't understand yet. There might be things we never can understand, never will understand, but as far as we go, you know, reason and logic are pretty good tools for little monkey brains that we have. <laughs> Aliens and other creatures might have other ways of knowing and ways of experiencing the universe, but I, I wish we'd you know, studied it. Yeah. You know, Arlen, did did you see anything um, emanating from this statue, or you, you just no felt? Just I don't know what. I don't know how to describe it. When I got close to it, it just felt like a an emanation, like there was something there. Not like magnetism or anything, but just uh, like like it somehow it was affecting my nervous system. That's what it felt like. Hmm. A lot to say, and uh, it's strange. I never never had that. So you wonder sometimes if those people are worshiping these ancient idols and gods and things. If uh, maybe somebody do something, car took a special special kind of stone brick, carved it into shape and uh, other people felt the same thing when they uh, it was probably a uh, I don't know what it was it was something experience I never had before or since but it was I wouldn't say that because I, I do think there are things that we don't understand I don't think they're religious or supernatural they're just there it's up to us to try to understand it I think Okay, and, and since you were just talking about uh, this unusual experience um, uh, being in close proximity to this uh, statue, um, you, know, you also worked with uh, the author of uh, uh, the what book, book um, that the movie Poltergeist was based on? Did you 
uh, learn anything that may explain uh, the, you know, the situation from Egypt or, uh, you know, were you able to apply uh, communication through, uh, you know, TV with, you know, just the fuzz on it? Uh, you know, so, so something like, you know, did, did you learn something about uh, working with that author? Well, that was Dr. Bill Roll. My wife and I worked with him in North Carolina. I was on the board of the Ryan Research Institute, you know, that investigates all that kind of weird stuff. And uh, that would be another whole program to talk to you about. But I've been involved. We were involved in the poltergeist investigation with Bill Roll at the Soldiers and Airmen's Home up in Washington, D.C. back in 1976. And uh, the, the quartermaster of the group, the U.S. Army colonel, had us all in and uh, did a study. I, we had psychics there. I was not one. I was just one of the control people, you know. But uh, we learned that I think I learned that uh, there are uh, there are entities, there are some things that survive after death, the material world, the physical world, and uh, sometimes we don't like what they do. That's what I'm saying. I just the first thing I ever wrote was published in 1972. It's called Tour to Unified Parasites. It was in Fate magazine. And in there, I asked if that the scientific world should investigate people who are dying with their permission, of course, and instrument it. I said, if we have instruments that can determine that all the properties of Mars and Venus and stars and everything else, why don't we use some of those instruments to look at a human body at death and see what happens? Because that would be the most important discovery we could ever make. And uh, I did see a thing last week, finally, that they are actually uh, doing studies of brains, human brains, as people are dying. That's the first time that I've ever seen a thing like that. It's taken, it's taken 50 years, but they're finally starting to do some of that. Uh, I do I believe uh, what, reality. I think reality is it like a CAT scan? Uh, uh, it's actually, within the last few days, there were... I think it was a new scientist magazine reported. I've subscribed to that. And, uh, they were actually doing all kinds of scans of brains. Yeah. They had permission to do it. Uh, they watch what happens at the moment people die, the brain activity and all the other things. Now, at the time, I I suggested that there's a conservation of consciousness. I was thinking about tiny magnetic field. I didn't think about the quantum level. But the could be that our consciousness, you know, is embedded at a quantum level somewhere. And that when the meat when the meat body dies, the quantum survives. I, I've written an article about that before. And Carl Sagan said in the old Cosmos program, when you if you could go at the speed of light, it would look like you're in a tunnel and there'd be a bright light at the end. And what does that sound like? That sounds like the stuff I was reading by Dr. Moody up in Virginia at the time about the near-death experiences where people uh, see a bright light going through a tunnel. Mm-hmm. So it's sad to me. I wrote an article 
years ago. Is there light after death? And it could be that, you know, if we're electromagnetic beings and uh, we travel to the speed of light, when you die, you pop out to the universe and uh, you get to go forever. That would be cool. I guess if you're, you don't have the right attitude, you might wind up in a black hole, which where I hope that, you know, Putin and Stalin and Hitler and these guys would be. <laughs> but, well, uh, it, it, yeah, you also get uh, yeah you know, to uh, make a rejoinder to what you said. Uh, you know, the evidence of the uh, Shroud of Turin seems like it, it, it's you know, just a burst of uh, light where uh, Jesus isn't. Or whoever it, the burial shroud was around, the, the person is not laying down. They're, they're floating, and the uh, the shroud is singed. It's not painted, so it seems like. Uh, some there was this burst of light energy, you know, whatever the correct term is, it, that uh, created a uh, the image on the shroud. It sa- sounds like you know, take you know, your experience and you know, go back, or, or you know, your thesis and you know, go go back to look at. at you know the one example from you know maybe you know two thousand about two thousand years ago. Yeah, there's. Like I said reality is a lot broader than we've been taught, and I I want as I mentioned before in our previous conversation with you that I knew early on, even though I was getting a doctor's degree in engineering, I was never going to be a a world class you know scientist or engineer. But I could go look in those little dark corners that. Charles Fort used to talk about there's a bright light overhead, but there's always a dark corner somewhere. Sometimes you look at those dark corners, there might be things crawling around there, things wiggling around. And you look at those dark corners and you might be the first to find something. I decided with ghost stories in the family, I mean, my great grandparents could have lived in Indian territory if they wanted to, but they decided to stay in rural Arkansas. So I heard all these stories about the Cherokees. I heard all these stories about magic and ghosts and hates and all the different things. And uh, I was always interested in the weird stuff. And so in addition to my professional career, I've always spent all my other, the rest of my time on the weird things, looking at those dark corners. Uh, it's interesting, like in the book on Kiarubiak there, that I can apply my education and my training to look at those things. And shed light on them, literally. And uh, in my science fiction, I come up with a new concept I hope people will listen to and maybe expand their mind or at least have fun with it. And the music, the music is weird. I have no idea where it comes from. Uh, <laughs> and the and all the psychic stuff, the UFO things I've learned. It just to me, it's, it's all one spectrum. There's nothing outside of it. I mean, 
I love to read about, you know, quantum physics and astronomy and SpaceX and exploration, but I also like to read about poltergeists and ghosts and cryptids and, uh, you know, there's so many things we've been involved in. We've been on Bigfoot hunts. We've uh, done haunted house investigations. I have watched I have watched poltergeist phenomena. I have watched. I've had precognitive dreams that were very detailed that occurred later. That huh. changed my mate. I, I had precognitive dreams that told me something's going to happen, and then I changed my behavior to watch it happen and make it turn out the way I wanted it. No, I can't uh, do uh, a lot of numbers. Believe me, if I could do a lot of numbers, I would have done that a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, no, no, I was just I was just going to say, did you, know, did you have a precognitive dream that? Uh, you, you know, you're gonna have uh, millions of dollars of uh, book sales immediately after the show ends, <laughs> and yeah, I wish, I wish. The <laughs> uh, main thing is, I I would like to a lot of people to read the stuff. I'd like to get their comments about their thoughts or what my thoughts were. No, oh, I I, 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 re- I really enjoyed both books. The Key Arabian book, I really hope to get it in front of people who can do something about it to go down and scan that whole thing with a 3D laser scanner, get a point cloud to get the exact dimensions, then run it through and see what it really does. On the science fiction stuff, I uh, I just want people to enjoy it, read it, speculate. Like I said, I have a lot of, I have a different take on science fiction. I have a lot of friends who write science fiction I don't knock what they do. If they can make money at it and the people like it, that's fine. I'm a big fan of alternate history myself. I love what happened, what would have happened if this had happened instead of that. And uh, uh-huh. I like that. And uh, but I, I, I'm very, very, very tired of Star Wars and Star Trek ripoffs. Like Guardians of the Galaxy, I can read. That, that can be fun. You know, that's not a big deal. <laughs> I can I can enjoy a lot of stuff in movies I won't bother to read. I mean I enjoyed I do I do used to know George Martin and I re- enjoyed most of Game of Thrones TV show. I I don't read fantasy but I enjoy watching it. And uh, I love the Expanse on television, the best science fiction there's ever on television. I like For All Mankind, which is alternate history. But I I'm just tired of. Space assassins and special forces thieves yeah. and, and um, Star Wars and Star Trek and all the, that. I'm, I'm glad people like it. I'm glad people. I have friends that make living at it, and I, I'm, I appreciate. It. I'm glad they do. It's just not yeah, for me. Uh, yeah, you have so, something uh, unique going on, I, and I'm appreciative that. Yeah, you had a chance uh, to be a guest and and discuss uh, Thaw and you know, the Shadow Shadowlands uh, or Shadowfall uh, trilogy with us. And you know, Arlen, we're down to about three minutes. And oh. you know, since since you were talking about uh, you know shining a light into dark corners, um, what's going on with the Ancient Kentucky monthly meetings with uh, Lee Pennington and Jill Baker's 
meetings at their well, homes. Yeah, we uh, I've been going there. We we moved to Kentucky here about eight years ago, and I've been going over there ever since. But until recently, I've uh, we have different speakers to come in and talk about different things. Uh, some of the people we've had in before, you've had on your show before, Mark mm-hmm. Mark Nicholas and the yeah and yeah I, uh, uh, Lori I and. Yeah, I did a uh, – I, I did that. We did an expanded version of that book, Chasing Dragons. I, I was the editor of that. We we greatly expanded that. And I'd like to I'd like to see their findings about Cahokia made into the archaeological record as real. You know, the first the first time the Chinese spread up a deadly plague in North America in the 1400s, in addition to the year 2020. You know. Uh, but we have different speakers come in and talk about weird stuff. I've made a couple presentations. I've made two presentations on this book once before it was out and once when it was out. I've talked about different things. And uh, Lee Pennington, of course, has always got something fascinating going on. Mm-hmm. And the most interesting thing about all of it, the background of all of it, was that the uh, thesis of Lee's work here is that King Arthur, there were two King Arthurs, one of them actually came to North America and was killed by Indians, Native Americans here. His body was taken back to Wales and buried. And uh, that's a fascinating story all by itself. I wish I'd like to see a movie. I'd like to see a documentary on it, but I'd also like to see a fictional movie on that adventure movie. There couldn't be a better adventure than King Arthur coming to North America and fighting Indians and being killed and wrapped up in a deer skin and Hey, Arlen, we're down to like uh, one minute. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to uh, thank you for being such a fascinating guest tonight, and uh, I enjoyed your books. Um, is there, you know, qu- quickly, or uh, you was. Uh, say uh, the best place to get your books, and then you know we'll uh, say goodnight. Okay, Amazon.com has got all these books, and uh, and, and more. I've got a, some other science fiction books out there, eBooks and paperback books. So I'd appreciate right. if anybody does buy them. I would appreciate a review if you like it. If you don't like it, don't do a review. <laughs> okay, so, so, sounds but, great. Uh, Thank you, Orlin. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we'll have have you come back. I I, I really had a great time with uh, you know, reading the, uh, the canon. So uh, yeah, uh, good night, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Good night.